Coming up on this week's show, Atari surprise us all again. The big retro gaming announcements from Gamescom so far. And we go inside the world of Microgen with Chris Hinsley. podcast is brought to you every Friday with our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. Now, have you seen their latest book, The Art of the Box? Now, this features 26 biographies of those artists who at some point in their career found themselves illustrating legendary game packaging. Now, this is a real celebration of the boxes that we bought our games in back in the day. We'll tell you more about that in just a bit. And you can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 392, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And very nice to be joining us for this, the podcast that every single Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back into the golden age of video games and technology, brings you up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and tech from over the last week, and of course brings you a veteran to share their story in the second half of the podcast. Basically, if you remember this sound... And this is the podcast for you. 56k. Oh, I knew someone was going to say that. That is the sound of the beloved ZX Spectrum loading a game. Oh, God. I was <laughs> I going to say very similar. Uh, look irrelevant now. Well, I thought this week, because we are going to be talking quite a lot about the Spectrum, that will be quite appropriate. Because, I mean, I was always a Commodore kid, you know, Commodore Plus 4, my brother had a Commodore 64. When he played games on a, a Commodore, it didn't actually play any sounds through the speaker. But the Spectrum, you could literally hear every bit and bite being streamed from the cassette tape, playing in that, uh, that glorious sound through your television. I imagine a lot of parents loved that back in the 80s. Yeah, I, I never really had a Spectrum. You know, I used one a few times, but it's, it's really interesting. And, you know, the guest this week is an absolute Spectrum legend. Yeah, now today we're going to be talking to uh, Chris Hinsley on the podcast. Now, Chris has got a really interesting history. I mean, he's uh, very well known on the Spectrum scene. Obviously, we spend, I'd say, probably the majority of the interview talking about Microgym, which were a uh, British games company back in the day. Um, He worked on titles like Pajama Rama and uh, the follow-up Everyone's a Wally. And uh, Microgym were a really interesting company, though, because, I mean, back then, we hear a bit of uh, insights into those early days there. And it was literally video game royalty who worked there. David Perry, who went on to form Shiny Entertainment, worked there with him. Um, Raphael Secco, who, of course, we've had on the podcast before as well. So really, I mean, it was, uh, you know, a real pool of creativity in those early days. And you imagine it's, you know, these really talented guys locked together in a very small room above a bakery, all in their <laughs> early 20s. I, I always loved the position of these games companies. Um, they also did the uh, Micro Plus add-on which uh, we talk about. And uh, that was a really interesting story because that kind of started the end of um, the company. Yeah, that story is fascinating. The story of the Micro Plus that was a hardware expansion that Microgen made for the Spectrum that on paper looked terrific, had some great specifications, had the potential there to you know really revolutionise the industry had it not been for some rather disastrous management decisions rushing it out the door that effectively meant that the Micro Plus bankrupted Microgen, as we'll hear about from Chris in just a moment. And then we follow Chris's career, going on to work for Rainbird on products like the Advanced Art Studio, and then something really revolutionary that he worked on back in the mid-90s called, um, I originally thought this was called 
Tau OS. Because I've read this for years. It's spelled T-A-O-S. Turns out Chris teaches me that it's actually pronounced Dow OS. But this was something you might have seen on the front cover of Edge magazine back in 1995, a parallel operating system that Edge proclaimed could completely transform the entire gaming industry. Obviously, unfortunately, it didn't quite work out to plan. But at one stage, Dow OS was also slated to be the future of the Amiga operating system as well, back in the late 90s. I think about a million things were going to be the future of Amiga as they were uh, desperately searching about. But yeah, we talk about that a bit. I do remember the hype about that and uh, yeah, it being covered in Edge magazine on the front page. Yeah, Amiga Anywhere and Amiga DE, I think it turned into that really weird period in the late 90s when I think the Amiga had gone through about four or five different owners at that stage. So it's going to be interesting to hear kind of what happened there. And obviously focusing a lot on his uh, days working on the spectrum at Microgen. Chris Hinsley, our special guest, will be on the show in around half an hour from now. Of course, Ravi is uh, fresh back from a weekend in Norway where you were out there at a, uh, an amazing show that unfortunately Joe and I couldn't make it to. But I heard Retro Mesa 23 was a big success. It was huge. It, it was probably double in size um and it was just fantastic we we had some talks all weekend and uh it was with the rare team i'm still recovering as you could probably tell because i only just got back yesterday it was just great going out and meeting everyone there you know uh they had the spiel podcast who we usually hang with the rare team uh, jonathan dunn from ocean was there as well um the retro messer team were absolutely amazing uh we had natalie helping us out as well jesse seeing my friend Jesse and some of the patrons as well. So we had Turgy, I met a hag. There were some other streamers and, uh, you know, video people there, like the game's mistress. There was a, a really good, really good laugh. And, you know, the audience were great. We did some really fascinating talks and we recorded them. So we're going to be bringing some to the podcast. But um, it just amazes me going out to these places and people coming up to you and saying, yes, I listen to your podcast and it's like, it doesn't seem real going to another country and seeing that. Yeah. And the kind of, the vibe of the place was, it was absolutely heaving this year. Um, yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, I just really, really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that should be uh, an awesome event that we'll get to next year. I've got one coming up next month. I'm going to be going to uh, Amiga Passione in uh, Spoleto in Italy. They've uh, kindly invited me out there to do a little talk on the Sunday. Very small little intimate place. Um, Alistair Brimble's coming out there with me as well. And this is, I mean, they sent me some pictures of what it's like in previous years. Basically, just about 20 guys who sit around a table, drink wine and eat nice food. Yeah, I, I think Retro Mesa was about 7,000. So yeah, it's so. going to be a very different vibe. But uh, Italian wine and food sounds good. Yeah. They didn't have to ask me twice. So uh, if you're going to be anywhere near that area, Spoleto, um, I'll link that up in our show notes as well. Uh, now, I can't believe this is our final show of August. That does mean that um, a big show is on in Europe right now, Gamescom. I think it's only about, what, been on for 24 hours at the time recording this. Um, so we're going to cover some of the retro headlines that have come out of Gamescom so far. Uh, bearing in mind, we do record the podcast a couple of days early. So if, like, you know, Half-Life 3 gets announced on Thursday afternoon, we'll cover that next week. But obviously the big thing that everyone's been talking about, and um, I'm not quite sure how I feel about this one, because it does kind of feel like uh, every week at the moment, the modern Atari company are doing things that I must admit I didn't see them doing. Like, you know, we talked about those arcade PCB reproductions that they announced a couple of weeks ago. That came a bit, you know, a bit left of centre. We're like, wow, okay, didn't see that one. Uh, this one, though, is quite unusual. 
in some ways cool, in other ways I'm not really all that convinced, but we'll see what you guys think of this. They've announced a new console, and this time, rather than trying to compete with that modern systems like they did about two years ago with that, you know, updated Atari VCS, this is literally a full-on retro system that gives you some of the... Um, modern conveniences like HDMI output, for example. This is the Atari 2600 Plus. I've had to read this like a few times to kind of get my head around it because I wasn't sure because Ravi spotted this and sent this over to us a couple of days ago. Um, and I was at first I thought it was a mini console and I was hmm. just like, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. But also whatever Atari has been for the last couple of decades, there's been like the cheap Atari flashback consoles and stuff like, so it just seemed a bit like, Oh, okay. They've kind of done this before, but on a cheaper scale, you know, like a, you know, a less quality scale. Maybe this is a more quality one, but that's not what it is. It, it is essentially a re-release of the Atari 2600, but it's called the Atari 2600 plus. Um, so it will still take the original cartridges. So it will play 2600 games as well as 7,800 games. Yeah, which uh, which Atari have been releasing as well. Yeah, which you know. Atari do do mm-hmm. release. They have released some of these, you know, officially and stuff. And obviously, a lot of homebrews and stuff like that. It's it's pretty much identical to the original. So it's got the 1977 uh, original wood grain on there, wood paneling and everything like that. But I wonder if that is real wood on this or whether it's I, just plastic. I would love it if it's real wood. <laughs> it does look like plastic from the screenshots, but uh, yeah. don't quote me on that. But I would love it if it was real wood. Obviously, they've updated it. So it's got HDMI output and supports widescreen and all stuff like that. Um, you know, because a lot's changed in the last like 46 years <laughs> since the original came out. But yeah, it, it does seem a bit of an odd move to kind of like, re-release the Atari and it play original Atari games, it will come with a 10-in-1 cartridge. Um, so, you know, I, I, I assumed it'd have, like, built-in games on it, you know, like a mini console. But it is a cartridge it'll come with, along with one controller, which is the CX40 Plus joystick. And those games, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not massive on Atari. I'm not, I don't think any of us are, really, to be fair. I think we no. all kind of miss the Atari I've got generation. free now, so... You are, you've got free, <laughs> yeah. free yeah. Um, you've got Atari ST, though, yeah, not 26. Yeah. yeah. I might so, get one, though, with this. So have you guys had a look at the, the games lineup that are on the 10-in-1? Yeah, I mean, some of these are, you know, very famous games, like yeah. Adventures on there, Miss Alchemans on there. I mean, Yars Revenge, you know, very good game, but then... I'm looking at this and I'm thinking the same as you, Joe. It's like the Atari 2600 is kind of predates my gaming era. Yeah. My father-in-law, his first system was an Atari 2600. So he's got a lot of nostalgia for these. He's 55. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking probably you're really aiming this at the 50 plus market, which is, you know, whether that's, uh, I don't know how big of a demographic that is for going out and buying new systems, because I've got a feeling that anyone that is still kind of into Atari, I've got an original Atari 2600. Um, I must admit, I've only played it about once or twice. But I got that off Facebook Marketplace for about 40 quid I th- I think, 80 months ago. I think you guys underestimate the power of Atari in America. Um, yeah. Uh, and the nostalgia with it. Like, this is a... It's, it's got a few little enhancements, like the logo lights up at the beginning, but it doesn't look necessarily... Uh, the logo lights up at the front, but it doesn't look necessarily that different from the original. And I think this is just a case of you know, the old hardware is getting old. So they've yeah. put this out and they've put a few little upgrades in there. But I think this is going to be a massive seller. Um, See, I, I'm looking at this and, and I'm thinking, yeah, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I understand that, you know, Atari was the first big console, but m- my argument 
is more who wants an Atari 2600 that plays the original game still in this deck. I mean, like Joe said, there's all those flashback machines that, you know, you can get those for like, you know, in bargain bins. So anyone that's a casual kind of gamer that's, you know, oh, I remember playing Atari would be more likely to pick up one of those for like 10 bucks. You know, if, if they're really into I, it, I, anyone that's yeah. got the original, a, a massive collection of original cartridges probably has original consoles. Well, I'm just looking at like the, the extra stuff on there. So it's the power that's actually inside it. If you look at the, the hardware, mm. um, you know, it's a lot more powerful than, than the original. Um, you know, they, they, there might be other options that we haven't seen. And they've also got stuff like the paddle controllers and they've got that nice joystick. I would buy that joystick on its own. It's got a DB9 connector as well. It's not going through USB. Um, yeah, I guess it's going to see what titles come out for it and uh, maybe they might shoehorn some VCS uh, software <laughs> into that. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, yeah, to maybe expand it a bit and stuff. But I think, you know, it could be someone, this is what I had when I was a kid, give it to someone younger these days. Um you know, I, th- I think it's, it's quite reasonable one price, uh, price-wise. It's $129. Yeah, and we will say at the moment it's only available for um, shipping in the United States. Um, well, it's not actually shipping yet. It comes out in November, I believe. Um, but they're taking pre-orders, apparently. It's US only right now. So, yeah, I uh, think... I'm not sure whether it's getting a worldwide release. I think, I guess they've seen the market of, like, the flashbacks and the stuff like that. So they've seen how they sell. But if this is lag-free and all of that. They're probably fixing the problems that were on those older consoles. And even then, there's stuff like you know, the Atari 50 collection that came out last year that you can play on the Switch or the PlayStation that have pretty much all these games on there. I don't know, it just seems weird to me. I mean, it's kind of like the audience I see is an original Atari 2600 collector who has all of the cartridges in their attic still, but the original console's broke. <laughs> Which I'm not sure quite how big that audience is. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, know, because, you know, they released that uh, Berserk enhanced edition uh recently and they're starting to release you don't know what um 2600 games they've got in their bag mr run and jump as well was one that they did it does play the classics like um custer's revenge you'll be pleased to know joe oh brilliant um (laughs) but there is actually a list of games that it's compatible with um and the compatibility is not 100 percent okay you go through the list and there is probably about i'd say maybe 10 percent of the original games maybe i'm exaggerating slightly there but there does seem to be like you know on every page there's a couple that are not compatible mm. when you go through the catalogue so uh it's an interesting device and i mean you know we have mentioned this over the last kind of couple of episodes when atari do these new announcements it is nice to see them kind of focusing 100 percent on retro now isn't it i mean it always tends to be the 2600 obviously i'd like to see a you know a remade atari jaguar with cd but i'm not holding my breath on that one well if if they released an amiga with like a little bit of hdmi out there and a few changes that played original floppy disk you'd be over the moon so i think maybe it's the fan base yeah a a cool little system so yeah we'll keep an eye on that it's available for pre-order now if you live in the u.s so i'll link that up in our show notes now, we did mention that Gamescom is on at the moment in uh, Cologne, and there have been lots of announcements that have not only um, come out of Gamescom, but also been online as well. And uh, I did see you were particularly excited about this one, uh, Joe, because um, this is a, a game that I, I imagine you loved on the N64 back in the day, and that is now getting a remaster. Our friends at Night Dive Studios are actually in Cologne right now. They've been talking about Turok 3 that's coming out later this year. Never played it. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> no, I am I am excited though. You are right. 
Um, so yeah, Night Dive Studios have been really busy recently, um, just putting out banger after banger, you know, in terms of the remasters. We need to get those on the podcast. We really do. I, um, I have actually uh, just saved the names of the guys for me to reach okay. out to them. <laughs> so um, that is a really good shout. So watch this space. But yeah, Torok 3. I loved Torok 1 and 2 for the N64. Never played Torok 3. Regrettably passed up a copy of it, boxed complete for £10 about five years ago at a games market and now it's worth a lot more than that um so looking forward to this remaster which is going to be expected at the end of this year just between october and december they're saying yeah these remasters you know the quake remasters they've done and doom and all this kind of stuff they've all been absolutely fantastic so obviously this is getting the same kind of like hd upscaling and it's using the original kind of play style but all they've done is kind of increase those textures you know, yeah. um, so it will have that old feel, but there's a lot of like fine tuning that they've said that they've done. But I kind of like that, you know, when they redid Crash Bandicoot and they kept it. So it had that original feel yeah. and uh, play style. Yeah, they always, Night Dive are very good at keeping the play style, but kind of modernizing the controls because obviously it's coming from the N64. N64 first person shoot controls much to be desired these days when you go back and play them um so obviously they'll probably modernize it kind of that modern typical call of duty kind of style controller layout um which you know i'm here for i love that they did the Turok one and two remasters about 2016 2017 which were fantastic you know it takes away the horrible draw distance like you say it upscales all the textures and stuff really enhanced the facial models and the clips and you know and stuff like that in the game um, and just an o- overhaul of like the frame rate and stuff like that because some of these games sometimes would have you know they'd have a lot going on the screen you know especially in Turok 2 I remember there was a particular level where you're in the jungle at night you know we used to love throwing the little disc little metal disc that would like rip apart all the lizard men and all the dinosaur men um, and you would get you'd get some pretty big slowdown in that so they fix all this kind of stuff you know so I'm really really looking forward to it like I say, expected the end of this year. It's coming out on everything, including uh, Steam Deck. So we've got Switch, PC, Xbox, PlayStation. It's, it's going to be all over the place. But not only have they announced that, they've also announced Star Wars Dark Forces, which is another one I'm ashamed to say I've never played. Are you guys too familiar familiar with that one? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, this was a great first-person shooter. Like, the Star Wars games on the PC were absolutely fantastic for that whole period with, like, you know, Millennium Falcon and stuff later on. I, I think this one looks really nice. They've kind of they've redone the cutscenes and stuff and you know, they've HD'd it up a yeah. bit, but they haven't gone ridiculous with the textures and stuff. They've gone more like crispy and nicer anti aliasing and um it, it's still got that feel of early kind of uh boomer shooters as they yeah. call them now. <laughs> yeah, they started calling them now. <laughs> I love yeah, because am I right in thinking Dark Forces isn't that long after Doom? Like, is it like 94, 95? Oh, yeah. No, no. This is uh, not long after Doom at all. Yeah. No. And uh, it's kind of that in-between period before they got yeah, into, 95. The, in, 95, into like yeah. the video, uh, you know, aspect of kind of the Star Wars games. Yeah, because the, the animation, as you say, it, I mean, I'm looking at the trailers now. I, I've never played it. I know what Dark Forces is, but yeah, looking at it now, all the cutscenes were kind of like 2D, very slightly animated cutscenes with voiceover but they've made it look really sharp and nice, haven't they? You know, with the, like you say, the HD upscaling and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, and they've not changed the style, which I like, you know, they've still yeah. got that kind of PC early style, but it's just a bit cleaner and it's a bit faster. 
Yeah, absolutely. And this is getting the exact same, you know, kind of late this year, uh, release through Night Dive, coming out on everything. Um, I'm, I'm absolutely here for both of these. I'm going to be buying both of these because of these are really impressing me and I'm really loving Night Dive stuff at the moment. When do those guys sleep? I don't know. Like, when do they sleep? How do they keep getting yeah. all these licenses? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all the licenses are all these different games because they're just putting out, like, so much good stuff at the moment. Well, they're owned by Atari now, aren't they, I believe? Yeah, I think they are, yeah, (laughs) interestingly. More exciting stuff out of Atari. So, uh, yeah, keep an eye on those coming out later this year. Just one more as well that I saw come out of Gamescom uh, yesterday on the first day. And uh, this is quite interesting that you remember a game called The Seventh Guest. Now, this was, um, I first remember seeing this very, uh, I think it was a CD-ROM title. Sure, it was an early CD-ROM title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was the, one it on of the, the early CD-ROM yeah, titles. That, that yeah. missed, wasn't it, really? The, the, the two f- first kind yeah. of big sellers. Um, I remember seeing it on Bad Influence, you know, Violet Berlin demonstrating it when I was, you know, a kid at, around Halloween and thinking, wow, that looks amazing. One of the first games I'd ever seen that had, you know, actual real full motion video actors in there as well. Played the game a few years later. Must admit some of the puzzles in there are a little bit weird. Um, but I do like the vibe of it. And uh, this, again, has got the full... HD remaster treatment, but also it's going one step further. This has been pushed into the realm of virtual reality. And what do you guys think of this? Yeah, it's interesting because w- when they did Seventh Guest, um, there's been a few remasters, and uh, Seventh Guest was one of these ones where they went full budget. You know, it was one of the first ones where they had like Hollywood level productions, multiple CD ROMs with it, and they and they fully went in there. Whilst Sierra were also doing their kind of a FMV stuff at the time. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting to see. I don't know if these are the original actors. It looks like they've got a new set of actors and stuff, and uh, maybe that will kind of, you know, put people off. I'm not quite sure. I, I haven't played it that much, um, but it, it does look interesting. And in VR, uh, I guess when we saw Mist go into VR, it was a whole different experience, and this one might be the same. Yeah, because, I mean, it's an interesting title to choose to upgrade because, I mean, again, it is a legendary title. And I think in terms of games that, you know, could potentially work well in VR, this has definitely got that potential, I think, you know, looking at this and remembering the way the game plays. I like the fact they're bringing it out just before Halloween. Um, So it's coming out on uh, October 19th, coming out on um, MetaQuest, I believe, PC VR as well. Not sure whether it's coming out on uh, PlayStation VR. Yeah, it's going to be on VR 2, it says. Okay, yeah, yeah, cool. So, I mean, I'll probably give this a download for my Oculus just because I think, you know, I've got a, I've got some nostalgia for the original game. I remember it impressing me back then. I do like the feel of it. I mean, in terms of, you know, Joe and I particularly always get excited about kind of horror games around Halloween. So, you know that I'm always looking for new ones. Yeah. So, yeah, it looks price a, dependent. It looks <laughs> a bit clean to me because I like the, yeah. the old rendered ones, you know, where, uh, yeah. like, it, it wasn't as slick and as clean and this looks very clean and... There's the new actors, but I guess they couldn't use the original footage and assets if they're going to go into VR. Um, yeah, I mean, they need a clean. You've got to have it from different yeah. angles, you know. Yeah, you're not going to pull it directly off the uh, the Philips CDI version. <laughs> no. Um, but um, yeah, so something to get excited about if you're into uh, horror games coming out in October. So if you want to check out the trailers for all of those games, um, we'll update you, of course, next week on uh, any more announcements from the, the retro side of Gamescom. You can share them out in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, I know this game was legendary on the NES back in the day. You guys fun to DuckTales? 
Love a bit of DuckTales. I was just waiting for you to sing the theme tune. <laughs> DuckTales, woo-hoo. Woo. That's so, probably um, about the third time I've done that in this show. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I was so excited for it. Um, but obviously, I mean, very big game on the NES. And uh, randomly, there was a, a while ago, I'd always find myself watching Twitch streamers playing DuckTales for some reason. Um, but now it turns out that if you want to play DuckTales on your Super Nintendo, a rather skilled ROM hacker has uh, updated this, um, Infidelity NES, who also did that Super Mario Brothers 3 Plus project that I think we talked about a while ago, has now ported this over to the uh, with um, a few enhancements as well to the Super Nintendo. Yeah, so th- this is interesting. So at a glance, uh, looking at the screenshots of it, it, it does look like a... I wouldn't say it's on par with your kind of like your typical Super Nintendo looking game because obviously mm. the original doesn't have any sort of like parallax scrolling or anything like that in the background. So there's only so much you can do because of this has been ported from the original source code. So it's an upgraded original source code. So it's more kind of like visual updates. So it's got a much cleaner and brighter palette. Um, mm-hmm. and obviously kind of takes away any of the sort of like screen tearing and flickering that the NES would have a lot of the time, you know, with um, on its original hardware, you know, with a lot of games which have a lot going on on them. And DuckTales is a notably fast-paced kind of platformer, you know, for the Nintendo. Um, so it does look really nice. It just has that kind of like quality of life to it. Um, and unusually, it seems like a very good platformer for what was, you know, a lot of those licensed games back then were just kind of half-arsed, weren't they? And just yeah, well, it was on. it was a Capcom one. So the Capcom Disney yeah. ones were always fantastic for the kind of like licensed games. But then, you know, like you say, a lot of the others were terrible. But in that kind of like 8-bit and 16-bit, you know, the 8-bit and 16-bit days, anything which was Capcom and licensed was just golden. Like, you know, they were, yeah. all, they were always fantastic. And, uh, you know, there's... there's, there's this definitely says it again here with this port. But yeah, it's mainly a visual performance, but there's also a um, soundtrack soundtrack enhancement as well. So it, apparently it's running the 2013 soundtrack to it, you know, the remaster that it got on like Xbox Live and uh, PlayStation Network in 2013. Um, I'm not too sure how that works when you play it on the SNES because of you can mm. play this on the original hardware apparently. And it is out now for free. Um, it did come out, in July, but you had to be a Patreon to uh, inf- Infidelity, I can't say it, Infidelity NES, uh, which was mm. only $5 and you would get it early debater version, but the full version is out now for free, uh, which is fantastic. But yeah, not too sure how that soundtrack will work on actual SNES hardware, but if you're just emulating the SNES version on your PC, um, you will get that you know updated soundtrack as well. But overall, I think visually it just it does look really, really nice and it is an absolute classic of a game. Um, so if you're a big fan of DuckTales, go check it out. And however they've updated that audio, Joe, it won't sound as good as you singing. No, it won't. Honest, no, no, definitely not. So yeah, very cool to see though. And uh, you know, if you uh, maybe maybe a game that I mean, I've it's a game that I'm very familiar with, but I haven't really played it much. So I think it's kind of you know, often when they do these kind of ROM hacks and stuff, it's a good excuse to, to actually finally sit down and play a game. Yeah. that you've kind of wanted to for many years. So, uh, yeah, that is out now. So I'll link that up. And of course, everything else we talk about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. I can't believe it is at the final weekend of the month. You know what that means? Coming up on Sunday, it is going to be Patrons Hangout Evening. This is where we all get together with um, as many of our patrons that want to come on. And we basically have, a, we call it a virtual pub meeting, a virtual users group. We all get together and just completely geek out about all things retro and uh, anything else goes for a couple of hours. Yeah, man. I, I absolutely love doing the uh, Patron Hangout. Um, I've said it before. I'll say it again. 
I'm sure I'll say it for many, many more episodes, but it is really just like hanging out with our mates. Like it, yeah. there's nothing awkward about it. The conversation just flows. As you say, people can come on, they can just come on and join in, you know, and, and get on with the chat and, you know, even take the lead. Some of the guys, you know, they just start like talking and stuff and it's brilliant. It's great that people have, you know, got that confidence and stuff kind of within the community that not, not that we've built, that everybody's built. Um, yeah. And then some people just join and they don't come on camera or come on, you know, on mic or anything like that. They just like to watch it and might even see it a little bit of a an extra episode of the podcast, really, you know, just to kind of get a little bit of an insight, a little bit more about us and some of our listeners. Um, but yeah, man, I'm really looking forward to this one. I've got the itch um, to buy something. I always end up buying something when we're on the Hangout because <laughs> we just talk about so much cool stuff and cool hardware and software that's coming out um, or has been out you know, for 30, 40 years. Um, so really, really, really excited for this one and seeing some Yeah, Joe's always there on eBay. So I, I need a Nokia banana phone. <laughs> I, I, I need an Engage. Yeah, I need a Game eBay, Gear. Yeah, yeah absolutely. EBay, buy one of those. But yeah, you know, <laughs> so some yeah. of the some of the stuff we end up talking about, you know, it just inspires you um, or you get inspired by the other users, you know, like, I want to play that. I want to play around with that. But yeah, absolutely love it, man. So if you've heard us talking about these hangouts and you think, oh, that all sounds fun, you haven't got around to joining us, um, now's a very good time to join us on Patreon. You'll get an invite to that on a Sunday evening, 8pm UK time. And of course, you get the normal podcast at ad-free each week. You get about 10, 15 minutes of extra news. In a couple of minutes, we're going to be talking about a couple of stories just for our patrons. And if you're a gold member or above, you'll get a, a brand new podcast next week as well. Our bonus monthly podcast that we do each month that we are now getting up to episode 37 next week of the Retro Hour After Hours where we cover all sorts of things on that so very good time to sign up and support this show on Patreon and of course for doing that you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming and I'll let you two guys induct our latest members into the Hall of Fame Hall of Fame <laughs> Who we got Ravi? Steve Q and Michael Kilmeck you both joined us on Patreon over the last week. We hugely appreciate your support. And if you'd like to join them as well, all the details to sign up to our Patreon are at theretrohour.com. Now, speaking of supporting this podcast, let's just take a moment to give a massive thank you to our longest running sponsor. I think, what is it, four years now, Bitmap Books have sponsored our podcast? Yeah, I think four, four amazing years, I must say. Yeah, yeah. four we love working with Sam and the team there. I mean, you know, we all love books. You know, I've got a big collection of books behind me. Bitmap books just jump off the shelf. You know, the quality of them and how incredible they look. We've talked before, they're the kind of books, aren't they, that if friends of yours come over who are not gamers, yeah. they'll always just pick one up if one's lying on the coffee table, like, oh, what's this? Yeah, Because it just looks so good. Whenever yeah. somebody comes into my games room at home, they always beeline for the books on the shelves. You know, they'll see the Mega Drive games and goes, wow, look at the Mega Drive games. And then they'll spot the books next to them. Yeah. And they'll just end up picking them up and just looking through them and going, I remember this game. I remember that game. I remember this game. And then before you know it, you've lost them and it's meant to be a Christmas party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where do I get this book from again? Where do I buy one? So uh, bitmapbooks.com. That's where you can check out all of their retro gaming books. Their big one right now, their big new book they've just launched and that you can order right now on their website is The Art of the Box. Now, this is a celebration of video game boxes. Because, I mean, you think how important boxes were back in the day. Because, I mean, before the days of watching playthroughs on YouTube, and the only real thing, I mean, apart from magazine reviews, were the boxes that you'd see on the shelf in mm. Virgin Megastore. They, were, they were the attention grabber, weren't they? Yeah. They had to be. And they had incredible artists back then. Talking about guys like, you know, Bob Wakelin from Ocean, Ken Macklin, Mark Erickson, Julie Bell, Steve Hendrick, all these guys, I mean, who were incredible back in the day. And uh, this book actually 
features 26 biographies of those artists who at some point in their career found themselves working on video game artists. Now, some of these only made a couple of covers over the short time they were in the industry, but actually they left a massive impression of it as well. Now, this covers so many as well. It is 564 pages, going really in-depth, more than 100,000 words, 350 full-colour images. And, of course, it is produced to their usual high standards. you got the, you know, the heavy gloss paper, incredible print quality, the ribbon bookmark in there as well. So you want to check out the, uh, the artist that it features and uh, the, the evolution I think I think this is lovely because a lot of these are illustrated or you know airbrushed and it it, it really adds a a different vibe yeah so um absolutely worth checking out maybe you're thinking we're getting into that time of year for you know birthday or Christmas presents could be worth a look so you can check that out right now the art of the box the new title from bitmap books and check out the rest of their collection of course supporting our sponsors really helps out the podcast so head to bitmapbooks.com Okay, next, we're going to be joined by this week's very special guest, an incredible interview this week going inside the world of Microgen and lots more as well with Chris Hinsley. He's next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest and uh, what a variety of systems and eras we're going to cover with our guest this week. Someone who uh, was very well known on the ZX Spectrum scene, worked for Microgen back in the day on some amazing games there as well. You might know him from the Atari ST, stuff like the Advanced Art Studio for Rainbird as well, and then got into uh, parallel operating systems and some really interesting work with Amiga in the 90s as well. So a heck of a lot to cram in. <laughs> we really appreciate you joining us for what's uh, bound to be a very interesting journey. Uh, Chris Hinsley, welcome to the show, Chris. Well, that, thank you very much for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks very much for uh, taking the time to talk to us and do some reminiscing. Now, we always like to kind of start, you know, back at day one, as it were. So I'm quite interested to know what originally got you interested in the world of computers and uh, video games. I mean, do you remember kind of your first experience where it all began for you? I think like most kids at the time, because, um, I mean, I started this journey back when I was like 10 and 12 and um, just started going to grammar school. And it was the time when you were starting to get the arcade cabinets turning up in the cafes and things like that. And um, at uh, school, we had a cafe across the road from the school called the Curry Corner. And Every kid would just go and spend their dinner money in <laughs> in the curry corner over lunchtime. So we were starving ourselves in order to learn how to play computer games back then. So the idea of com- computer game- games and everything was um, was quite fascinating. I think I was I was always more interested though in how the computers did what they were doing. Because, I, I, I mean, I would occasionally, you know, have a game of Asteroids or Defender or something like that. And it wasn't the actual playing of the games that fascinated me. It was the concept of how they did it. And that really started to to crystallize and became like a career motive, even back then when I was like 12 years old, it was when I saw a cassette load of Space Invaders on a Commodore PET. 
And this was in the computer lab at school. And they'd only just got in some computers. So there was an old chiclet style Commodore PET. And they'd just got in one of the new style PETs, which had a much better keyboard. And somebody had uh, a cassette of Space Invaders. I don't know who it was by. But seeing that running on the Commodore PET made me realize that what I was seeing across the road in the cafes was exactly the same thing I was seeing here in the computer lab at school. And that got me really fascinated to actually work out how. How was the Commodore PET doing this? Also, I would then, if I could do that, I would not have to spend my lunch money on on playing the games anymore because I could just program a game myself and I could save all my dinner money. Well, it, it provided you with some food then, which is good. Um, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> at, at the time, that really was a seminal moment because um, I'm sure if you ever got to speak to my teachers at the time, I had a, a career mapped out that was going to be all physics and chemistry. I I completed my chemistry O-level a year early. I even paid to go into the exam myself. And that was my fascination at the time. I was just completely into chemistry and physics. And then I had this experience of seeing the Commodore PET doing, you know, just playing Space Invaders. And that was it. My focus then, it was just completely OCD. I just wanted to know how this thing did that. And everything else, much to the um, annoyance probably of all my teachers, it was just nothing else then held my interest. It was just computers. Well, when did you get out of the computer lab and start working at home and, uh, you know, Um, trying to program yourself? Well, I did. I wasn't actually allowed into the computer lab, which is another interesting side story, but I'll quickly cover it. Um, back then, when it first came in, the UK schools only really allowed access to the computers to the people that were extremely good at mathematics. So you would have the A students in math were allowed to sign up to do the supplementary computer course. But I was only like C-grade math. I am a bear of very little brain when it comes to hardcore math. But I think something that a lot of people don't understand is that computers aren't math. You know, there is still this idea that computing and knowing about algorithms is math. Well, yes, okay, there's the core logic to do with how computers work. But algorithms are not really math they don't work like that it's more an understanding of like lego bricks if you can understand the concept of being able to take a very small thing and then plug them together to build a bigger thing then that's the essence of computing it's not math i mean all computers all they ever do is add that's all they do so if you can understand addition, then you can understand everything there is to know about a computer. But I had to, again, I had to actually apply to take the computer course uh, O-level, and I paid for it myself to to do it. 
And I had to do the entire O-level course in three months because that's the only time I had available to do it. So I had to cram the whole course into three months and um, do all the project work and everything that uh, went along with that. And uh, I did pass and I got a grade A. So that's pretty good. <laughs> nice. And well, that is commitment to get access to the computer then, to, to go ahead and do that. Well, I actually <laughs> had to beg to do it. I, I actually had to cajole the computer science teacher at the school to let me have access to the machine in order to do my projects. It really was a case back then that if um, you know if you weren't good at math, then it was just seen as, well, you can't really do computing then. But um, I then started uh, working on nagging my mum, you know, spending her hard-earned cash on a ZX81. And that's how I got my first home computer, was um, uh, just the power of nagging, really. And eventually I got a ZX81. I didn't even have a 16K RAM pack at the time. I decided that, everything Clive was saying about you can make this thing do whatever you want. All you've got to do is learn how to tell it to do what you want. So I viewed it really as the ultimate interactive toy. I mean, it, it, it would do anything that you could explain to it how to do. Uh, and then I quickly found that you had the problem that you were programming it in basic and you only had 1K of memory. And then I had to start nagging my mum about buying me extra RAM packs and additional keyboard cases so that every time I pressed a key, it didn't crash. All of those things that anybody that ever had a ZX81 with a RAM pack will tell you about. Yeah, lots of Bluetack to keep it in place. I didn't use Bluetack. It was all about <laughs> Vaseline. Right. <laughs> uh that's not a Julian Clary type reference. <laughs> uh, what I'm saying is like the, the way that the RAM pack wobbled at the back, if you actually just coated the whole of the edge connector in Vaseline, it actually stopped the amount of times it would crash. There's a hack that um, yeah. more people should have known about back then. There, oh, there's, a, there's a lot of people, a lot of people back then that had a ZX81 that will tell you about the Vaseline hack. Well, let's talk about you know the, the games you were making at home then. I mean, so, I mean you've got the ZX81, you eventually got the RAM pack there as well. What were some of like the, the first games that you programmed yourself and how did that kind of transition into you working in the industry professionally? Well, a lot of the games I actually did on the ZX81, nobody actually knows about. The I started copying the games that I was just seeing out, you know, on out in the uh, the cafes. So I did a version of Space Invaders. That was probably the first thing I ever did. Um, I very quickly, by the way, learned that BASIC wasn't the way to do this. There was a single page, two pages in the back of the ZX81 manual and also in the Spectrum manual that listed the Z80 opcodes. And I had no clue what these things were. Not a clue. And just by trial and error, I worked out what they seemed to do. I mean, th this sounds crazy, but yeah, I reversed engineer what, what the Z80 opcodes did by just poking them into memory, jumping to it and seeing what happened and then just figuring out what must be going on. So once I'd figured that out, I started to do 
you know, my first game, which was like Space Invaders. And then I did a version of Centipede. I did a version of Scramble, did a version of Missile Command. And was I think I was working on a version of Tempest. And uh, this was all of the ZX81. And around that time, you'd started to see companies like, um, was it Silversoft? who had started advertising like five games on a cassette for your ZX81. At the compilations, yeah. Yeah, in the back of Sinclair User Magazine and things like that. And I decided that I would put those five games I'd done uh, onto a cassette and advertise it in the back of um, Sinclair User. And I saved up my pocket money uh, in order to put an advert in the classifieds at the back and um, they published the classified ad, and they missed my address off. Oh, ouch! <laughs> so I never get. So I never got all of the postal orders coming through the post that other people did, because yeah, my pocket money then was used up, and I could hardly like try and complain about what had happened because like you're a 12 year old kid you're not going to get anywhere but as a result of that i didn't become millionaire off of shipping cassettes out of the uh out of my mum's flat but i did get noticed by a guy called uh, paul denial who was a salesperson from microgen and uh, he must have seen that and I ended up being contacted by him, and he was selling the early Microgen games. I mean, Microgen had done like a version of um, chess, which was the thing that was their big one at the time. And he was doing the rounds of the local stores trying to sell cassettes to them and decided to come you know, and visit me. We hit it off really well. He tempted me with um, developing for the ZX Spectrum. And I I didn't have a Spectrum at the time, but I persuaded my my mum to shell out more hard-earned cash to get me a Spectrum. And this was um, just a 48K Spectrum, the old rubbery membrane keyboard. And I started work on that and started developing uh, a game. The first thing that I worked on was really a better way of actually doing the the graphics because on the ZX81 it was all character based graphics you could use like quarter character pixel blocks to do you know that kind of thing but um, it was essentially a character based display but the spectrum had a pixel based display even though it had a character based color attribute system you got a you have to just learn to love the way the Spectrum did things. So I started off by developing a routine uh, that would display sprites, just 16 by 16 blocks, but on a pixel basis rather than on a character basis. And I used that routine to code up a game called Laser Warp. I don't know if you if anybody even remembers that back in the day. And that was the first game that I did um, for Microgen that Microgen published and went on from that to Microgen eventually approached me to say, would I 
essentially leave what I was doing. Um, I was um, doing a six, I was six months into a computer degree course at the time. By that time, and they asked me if I would leave that course and come and run a game studio down in uh, Ashford, Middlesex. So everybody that was actually on the computer course was just saying to me, absolutely, definitely do it. It's like, we've no guarantee of even getting a job at the end of this course, but they're offering to give you a job now. So just go. And, and th- then give us a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was that, yeah. Um, so that's how I ended up. It went from being a hobby to being uh, a profession. Well, what was a kind of typical day like working at Microgen? To start with, it was me, and I was living in a single-room flat. Initially, when I first moved down, I stayed in the spare bedroom of the technical director of Microgen, a guy called uh, Andy Laurie. I stayed in his house for the first uh, three months while I managed to rent myself a room. That was in Staines, Middlesex. I managed to, to find somewhere to stay. And so essentially it was sitting in his back bedroom coding and he had a a CPM machine, which was a, this was a complete revelation to me. Up until then, all the games I'd created and programmed, I had hand poked in all of the Z80 opcodes by hand in decimal <laughs> not even hex. So it really was a, you know, the word labor really meant something. I would hand poke in the opcodes, save the what I'd put in off to a tape, run it. If it crashed, I'd reload it from tape and fig, try and figure out what I'd done wrong and just kept iterating that procedure until I'd got a game working. And yet... Um, Andy introduced me to the idea of having a, a CPM-based machine that had a WordStar editor and a Z80 assembler. You, I could actually type in the instructions in text and then press a button and it would it would assemble that and I didn't need to worry about saving it out to tape or anything like that. So that was an absolute revelation, and that was what led to Pajama Armor. Oh, well, sorry, that was Automania. The game that came out of that was Automania, and that was really an exploration of the, this new tool chain. I mean, it, you can't imagine how unbelievably magical that was to me at the time because I'd never experienced anything like this. I could actually type in my ideas and press a button and then see it appear on the screen. That was just magic. And the game that I developed on, you know, with those tools um, in Andy's bedroom was Automania. It wasn't a very sophisticated game. It was only a two-screen game where you, it was a collect and build game. You 
avoided and jumped over some sprites and collected pieces to build cars. And then if you completed that car, you then got to build the next car, etc. It was really wasn't a tremendously sophisticated game, but um, it was my introduction to this new idea of having a proper professional tool chain. Yeah, and a great starting point as well, obviously, and we'll go into more of what you did at Microgen 2. But I'm quite interested in, in a bit more about the company itself as well, because I mean, obviously, we heard a lot about them back in the day, and it's, you know, th- these kind of early British microcomputer gaming companies. Um, they kind of came and went, so I know they, they went defunct around 1987, 88. I mean, I'm, I'm quite interested in a bit more about the, the kind of development process there. I mean, it, obviously, that was the age of kind of the, the solo bedroom programmer. Did you generally work solo, or was it like a team that you'd bounce ideas off? How did it kind of work Ori- developing the game? Originally, games? it was me. There was me doing the work. Eventually, we managed to get a a room above a bakery, <laughs> believe it or not, right. and we started to hire some more guys. And some of those guys are names that you will recognize. Uh, first chap that we got in was Dave Perry. Uh, next guy that we got in was a guy called uh, Nick Jones, Followed in Nick was uh, Raphael Checo, and that was the core four people for a while. And my job was to teach them how to program and teach them how to create games. And I think probably the nicest thing that Dave Perry ever said about me was that everything he knows about computers he learned from me, which is a very nice thing for Dave to say. But the atmosphere when Pajama Armor and Everyone's a Wally was created, that was a complete madhouse. You can imagine what, you know, you've got a group of guys that are, you know, between like 18 and 20 that have just been set free to go wild on hmm. a bunch of computers. And Andy set up a multi-user CPM machine um, that we could use. So we all had to terminal onto this um, CPM machine, which was from a company called Hotel Microsystems. So really it was us throwing ideas at each other and competing with each other. I want to stress the amount of competition there was, but it was friendly competition I would come up with a way of doing something and then Dave would decide he wanted to come up with a better way of doing that. And then Raph would decide that, well, I'm going to do that. But in my game, I'm going to have the guy's head fly off as a weapon. And then somebody else would come up with something and Nick would be busily trying to get 128 multiplex sprites on the 64 because we'd come up with a way of getting 64. So he had to come up with a way of getting 128 that atmosphere is what led to a lot of the, the development work that went on at Microgen. It was just a bunch of really good mates that were taking the piss out of each other all the time with a very competitive atmosphere, but just being left alone to just be a madhouse of creativity. Well, you mentioned uh, Pajama Armor there. It's quite an interesting idea for a game. Uh, where did that story come from and uh, how did you come up with the ideas? The ideas, the the puzzles in the game, were really it was a team effort. Uh, We just would throw ideas around as to what objects could be in the game and so forth. But the, the basic concept of having an arcade adventure 
that was my idea because I'd looked at things that uh, companies like Ultimate were doing. You had uh, games like Alienate, Night Law, and stuff like that at the time. As well as compete amongst ourselves, you also had this healthy competition at the time between gaming companies. They were always trying to get one up on the, on what the the last great game was or the last great technique that somebody had used. And all those games seemed to revolve around were just running around and collecting things, but not really doing much else. Or there was the arcade-style blast of games where you just shot everything in sight. And they also was your text adventure games where you would be presented with puzzles and you'd have to figure out how to solve the puddles, puzzles to proceed through the game. So I just thought, well, why can't you just do that all in one game? Why can't you have items that really did things? You don't just collect them for points. Maybe you had to collect them and carry them around and that those objects could then be used to solve puzzles that let you into new areas of the game. And while that was going on, you could still have arcade elements that things you had to shoot, things you had to dodge, etc. So you had that kind of reaction type game, but also underlying everything, there was this adventure. You were trying to ultimately get to some solution for the game. And in Pajama Rama, that was to actually set the alarm clock off. You wanted to eventually wake Wally up because he was in the scenario was he was in this nightmare and he was having a dream and he had to go through all of this in order to wake himself up. But the the other ulterior motive for that scenario was what I've mentioned before, the Spectrum had this attribute clash problem where you could only assign a foreground and background color on a character basis, even though you're, you, could, you could implement a sprite routine to move things smoothly, you couldn't do that with the colors. Mm. So with Pajama Armor, the idea of basing it in a dream meant that we could just make everything really large. So although the Wally sprite was like a 16 by 32 sprite, all the, the, the graphics in the rooms could be large. And so they could be big and colorful, but you didn't suffer from the same color clash that you'd have if you tried to have them the same scale as the main sprite. So that was another one of the motives of doing it that way around. And we ended up really capitalizing on that idea again when uh, Dave did, he took the Pajama Rama engine and respun it to do Dummy Run. And mm. that was his first real programming exercise, his solo programming exercise to start with, was to take the Pajama Rama code and respin it to do a new game. And with Herbert being a baby, we could still stick to the idea that everything else in the environment was large and colourful because Herbert was only a baby. He didn't have to be in a dream, but everything would still work out the same way. And we could still use the same room mechanics, the same drawing mechanics for all of the rooms and locations, the same adventure tables, etc. And it would all just work. So it was interesting as well because um, I mean, obviously, you know, these games were based around Wally Week. You know, there's five games in the series, and he'd be kind of 
came, you know, Mike, Michael Jin's mascot, you could say. That's what, probably what we call it today. Obviously, he had Wally and, you know, his wife, Wilma, and baby Herbert in there too. And then for the sequel to Pajama-Rama, Everyone's a Wally. How did you improve upon the, the engine in that then? And I mean, that game, I'm looking at, you know, the reviews that these games got in Crash back then. They're all 90 plus. Well, I mean, Everyone's I, a Wally I, was 93%. I won a Golden Joystick Award for Pajama-Rama. Mm. But just as a little side story because Dave Perry will definitely tell you about this if I don't tell you about it, is um, when we went up to collect the award at the, the Inn on the Park in London, I got so nervous about going up on stage to collect the award that I ended up throwing up in the toilets and I couldn't go on stage. And, oh, so, wow. da- and so Dave, <laughs> being being the ego maniacal person he is he decided he went up and collected the award for me (laughs) (laughs) so he got my award it's like yeah thanks dave um (laughs) but um yeah the 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 idea in pajama armor was that you you had a couple of objects that you could carry around and and that rather than being a a restriction actually turned out to be a real positive because you couldn't just put ev- pick up everything and then run around and solve all the problems because you literally had everything in your pockets. You could only carry two items. And so you had to plan how you were going to do this. You had to go and put something down to pick something else up to solve a problem and then maybe come back and pick the item up and then go on to solve the next part of the problem. So that everyone's a Wally, the next pro- progression was why not have multiple characters doing that? So instead of just having the one main character, Wally, let's have five characters and they each could be carrying two items around and introduce the idea that as well as an item could be used to solve a puzzle, well, introduce the item that items that were dependent on the skill of the person to do the job. So you had Tom, Dick, and Harry that were like electrician, plumber, uh, you know, carpenter, and Wally was a general mechanic. So the skills that they had had to go along with the items they were carrying, and you had to join, match those things up as well to solve problems. So um, you had to be a plumber in order to use the spanner to fix the water pipe. You couldn't Mm. just be, you couldn't say, okay, well, I'll just be Wally and I'll go get the spanner and fix the water pipe. No, you actually had to be Dick, the plumber, to do that job because that was his job. Well, interestingly, uh, Microgen as well, they they produced some hardware, um, which was the uh, Micro Plus. Um, How important was that to like their business? Um. I suppose it was probably the most important thing that ever happened because it bankrupted them. And, I mean, that's a fact. That's what happened. The idea was an absolutely fantastic idea. Um, The hardware was developed by Andy Laurie. And the idea was that you you had your ordinary 48K Spectrum and that we would supply a, a ROM cartridge and that ROM cartridge would give would would take over the internal 16K ROM, so it would give you an extra 16K of memory. 
to store graphics and things like that. Also, that little ROM add-on came with a Kempston-compatible joystick port. So as well as providing you an extra 16K of memory, it also gave you a Kempston joystick. And the idea was that as soon as you plugged that cartridge in and you powered up your Spectrum, then the software that we had in the new ROM in the Micro Plus would take over the machine. You would then turbo load the rest of the 48K of memory off a cassette as normal, but then you would have a game that was using the full 64K of memory, plus you had a joystick already built in. And the idea was fantastic because the Micro Plus um, cassettes at the time were shipping close to like eight to 10 pounds a cassette at that point. And the Micro Plus was priced at 14.99. So really you weren't paying much more than just buying a cassette and you've got a cassette and you've got a joystick interface and you've got all this extra gameplay. But the crucial thing that people certainly the distributors and other companies understood at the time is that it was not piratable. Mm. You couldn't pirate it. So back then, everybody, you know, was just copying cassettes and you had lots of people trying to come up with ways of stopping cassettes being copied, like imprint two and all this kind of, you know, lenses you put on the screen and, oh, you know, ridiculous ways of trying to do it. Lens lock, yeah, Lens lock. nightmares about that. But, yeah. but they never got anywhere. <laughs> It never stopped anybody, but the Micro Plus would just stop you dead in your tracks because without the actual hardware, you couldn't do anything with the cassette. It was pointless. You couldn't play the game without the engine that was in the Micro Plus itself. And it wasn't the hardware. It wasn't the the design of that that caused the problem. In fact, uh, Microgen had... All of the distributors were salivating at the at the possibility of the, the number of increased units and margin they would get from selling it. And we had other companies like Ocean and Ultimate and everybody at the time were looking at it to license the MicroPlus from Microgen. And that would have catapulted Microgen from being Probably it would have catapulted them to being probably the biggest games company in the UK and probably would have gone on to do a lot more than that. But for one big problem is that they put the wrong game out on it first. Dave Perry was working on Three Weeks in Paradise at the time. We had been doing way more graphics, way more gameplay and adventure work on it. We had gone back to a more pajama-rama-style, fun, friendly, easy-to-pick-up game because everyone's Wally was a little bit too cerebral. It was getting a little bit too difficult to play. So we wanted that more instant pick-up-and-play game, and David had concentrated on that angle, and he had all this extra memory to play with. And we were two weeks away from Dave doing the final cut of the game for the Micro Plus when uh, Microgen's management made the decision that they would, they're going to ship Shadow of the Unicorn on the Micro Plus. And Shadow of the Unicorn was not developed in-house. It was developed um, by an external developer. And everybody 
you know, in the core team at Microgen, like me, David, Nick, Raf, we all said that that shouldn't happen. We all thought Shadow of the Unicorn was not a good enough game. It shouldn't even have ever been on the Micro Plus. It was not the, your, the thing that you should release as your first thing that was supposed to be your industry-changing experience. They put um, Shadow of the Unicorn on the Micro Plus and it came bundled with a pamphlet-style novel. And the problem was that the game was not good. I mean, that's the work. I'm not going to say anything else. The game was not good. And we, as a team, begged um, Andy and Mike Meek to, to not do this. We said you only have to wait two weeks and you can have three weeks in paradise as the, the first Micro Plus game. And we begged them not to do it. And yet they decided to do it. But as a result of that, the reviews of Shadow of the Unicorn were very bad because it had nothing to do with the hardware. The hardware was fantastic and it was a fantastic idea. But the game wasn't good enough. It really wasn't you know, like a AAA game. And it gave people the impression that the reason that it was bad was because of the Micro Plus. And so every all of the licensing deals that Microgen had signed up for with other companies, um, they all fell apart. And the distributors were left with stock that they couldn't sell of Shadow of the Unicorn. And so they didn't want to buy any more because they just saw it as, well, we've just bought all this stock and it's not selling. So we've wasted all this money investing in this concept. And David was told you have to rip everything out. The whole of the Micro Plus side of Three Weeks in Paradise, you have to rip it all out. Take it all out and fit it into 48K. And we're going to just have to go back to shipping a, a single tape. But Obviously, the the amount of money that had been sunk into buying all of this hardware and the stock that was held, that really crippled Microgen, and it never recovered from that mistake. And I will say now, go on record, it had nothing to do with what the programmers uh, you know, said to do. We all said not to do this. Just one of those really bad business decisions, it unfortunately. A, it was a terrible, yeah. terrible decision. And it had nothing to do with the game side of things and everything to do with, you know, promissory agreements that somebody had made to a distributor, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea of waiting for two weeks to give them a better product just wasn't possible. Well, I mean, you know, after Microgen, you um, you obviously moved into the 16-bit era. Um, just kind of, you know, before we get into the, the stuff you were doing um, on uh, parallel operating systems and the Amiga, because I'm really interested to talk about that. I mean, let's just jump into um, your time at Rainbird briefly, because you um, you were involved with a, a really interesting project there, the, the Advanced Art Studio. So what was kind of the, uh, the story there? Well, the Advanced Art Studio was not the Advanced Art Studio. The actual story of what happened there was that I developed a sprite editor. When we were at Microgen, me and Dave Perry particularly, we had a competition going between us where we invented our own sprite editors. So 
the graphics that you see in Pajama Armor and Everyone to Wally and Three Weeks in Paradise, etc., were all edited on our own tools. We created our own sprite editors and room editors. And me and Dave had a friendly competition going between us where we would we developed our own tools and kept trying to put better features into them. And eventually, when I moved, um, when Microgen went down and we all went freelance, I developed my own tools for the Atari ST. So I created a sprite editor and a room editor and a map editor, which I used to develop. Um, I think the game I was working on at the time for it was Custodian. And the tools that I was using were what became the art studio. And what happened was that Rainbird, I went up to see Rainbird at one point. I mean, it was that time where everybody was always like inviting the freelance guys round and you gave them a lot of coffee and cakes and tried to get them to come work for you. And so I went up to see Rainbird in London. I demonstrated my sprite editor in order to show them what uh, was going on with um, the game I was working on. And it was the executives at Rainbird that said, we should package this and sell this as the art studio for the Atari ST. Right. So it actually had nothing to do with the art studio. Art studio <laughs> was a product that we all, you know, know and love that was a Spectrum and a Spectrum 128K title. And it was really more a pure art style package. But Rainbird looked at what I had and decided that, okay, we'll package this as the art studio and we will sell it. And so my sprite editor and room editor ended up becoming the art studio for the Atari ST. Interesting. So yeah, and obviously that became a you know very widely used tool on that on that platform for a lot of artists and developers well, as not, well. Not just, um, not just that platform. It, it mm. actually, for a few years, became the industry, industry standard art tool chain across the board because it would do conversions to the Spectrum and uh, Amstrad 128 and all the other machines. It would convert the sprites to work on those machines. And it gave you a map editor and it would output the maps you could just you know, include in your you know, development files and so it actually became adopted as the the art programmer interface tool across the industry. And Rainbird were really surprised at how many copies it sold. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And at the time, games that sold 100,000 copies would get to number one in the charts and win you an award. But Art Studio itself sold well over 100,000 copies as an art package. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, around this time, it feels like you're kind of, you know, obviously you've got the games background there, but you're kind of moving into creative uh, tools here as well. Um, and I've definitely got to ask you about this because I remember reading, um, you know, kind of jumping forward a couple of years. So in 1995, I mean, when Edge magazine first came along, you know, I was a religious reader of that back then. And uh, we all were. I remember reading about this really interesting product that was actually the the cover feature of edge magazine back in 95 and you'll have to correct me if i pronounce it wrong because i've read it so many times over the years it tau os is that how you pronounce it it's pronounced daos daos right okay right. now you can say i pronounced it wrong for 25 like, years t, so, t, t a o 
is yeah. a Chinese word, and it's pronounced Dao. It's, it's right. supposed to be an unaspirated T, so it sounds like a D. But Dao is the Chinese philosophy of the way, as nature intended, um, that kind of uh, philosophy. Um, so Daos was yeah. was a play on that idea. It's like, this is an operating system that is the way it's supposed to be. And that came out of um, work that I'd done on – I was working on Onslaught at the time. Uh, that was a games project I was working on for uh, Houston. And as a result, coming out of that, I'd started to adopt a way of working that was – a I defined my own machine language, so I wasn't using the ST or Amiga 68000 machine language anymore. I was using my own language, which was called uh, VP, Virtual Processor Language. And it was that combined with all of the the accumulation of routines over the years, because eventually we were all really developing our own operating systems all the freelancers around we would exchange routines with each other a bit like the uh, public domain software scene before it really got its name but it was more sneaker net than internet and i eventually decided to formalize that idea create an actual operating system kernel and that is what became daos so it came out of the game's development work and it emerged out of those ideas, but became an operating system in its own right. And I found that article in Edge really interesting. I revisited it actually before we did the interviews to kind of read it again. And what, what kind of potential did Daos have for, for gaming? And why do you think Edge saw the potential so much that they actually made it a cover feature? Well, the, probably the biggest feature that it offered was that the, it was a binary portable system. So you you programmed in this low-level processor code called a virtual processor code, and that code was converted to the particular machine code, the native machine code of the machine you were going to run it on. And that conversion was done on the fly. So you didn't compile things. Um, you could say it was like a JIT compiler, but it was low, more low-level than that and way, way, way faster and more efficient. So I got to the point on the game side where I would code up again once and then producing the Amiga version of the game was literally pressing a button. I didn't oh. have to do anything particularly different between the ST version and the Amiga version. I could just press a button and get the Amiga version out. Well, you, you mentioned Amiga there. I remember in, in the Amiga press at the time, there was a lot of stuff about, um, you know, Amiga working with uh, Daos. Um, what, what happened there and uh, how did it end up? It was always really an arm's length relationship. Uh, I think uh, Bill McEwen was the chap who... I don't know the in the whole ins and outs of what happened as far as Commodore and Amiga went, but the rights to uh, the Amiga had somehow ended up. Yeah, with, I think it was with after Bill. Gate after Gateway. It went yeah. to uh, Bill, and they formed yes. uh, Amiga Inc. That was yes, yeah. 
Well, they approached us saying that what they wanted to do was come up with a, a new operating system for the Amiga, and they wanted to use the virtual processor system in order to do it. And we were quite happy to license them the virtual processor translator technology. But really, that's that's all that ever happened. We We didn't really have any involvement beyond that. They had the, uh, their own idea about what they wanted to do as far as building a new UI, uh, drivers, and all of this kind of thing. And uh, Dow Group really had nothing to do with it. I think we went to one press event just to you know, press the flesh and say hello, and that's all that ever happened. Mm. So the, the Amiga DE system that they eventually came out with, that was all to do with Amiga. It had very little to do with us beyond we had a support contract with them. Ah, so they so they basically licensed it and then turned it into that uh, Amiga Amiga DE. Yeah, idea. they they yeah. just licensed the VP translator technology and then they built everything else themselves. I mean, we never even saw any of the source code. Yeah, I mean, that was a really interesting time for the Amiga. You mentioned, obviously, that was about five years after Commodore went bankrupt, and there were a couple of Amiga magazines remaining. I remember buying one called, um, I think it might have been Amiga Action, it may have been Amiga called. Amiga Active. The, active. Active, that was the one. Yeah. There was a feature with you in there as well, wasn't there, that, that I came across online? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not that we weren't interested in what the possibilities were. It's just that, well, frankly, the people that seemed to be involved were not the most stable in terms of having a good business idea or something. There just seemed to be a lot of shifty things going on with Amiga at the time. And so Dow really just wanted to have a an arm's length relationship. It's like, yes, if you, if you want to license our technology to do your own thing, then please go ahead. We're happy to do that. But you know, we had nothing to do with Amiga DE or what was in there or what plans they had to come out with new Amiga machines. That had nothing to do with Dow. I think, I think there was always a, a bit of hype with the Amiga as well because they were desperate to kind of search for the next path. And, well, I, um, I, I think the Amiga was probably one of the most influential machines that has ever been produced. Totally, yeah. And, it, and I don't care about GPUs and I don't care about, you know, NVIDIA's latest machines. If you were to say, could you pick a machine that really stood out as defining what a computer could do, it's the Amiga. Because what you could do with that machine, with the limited hardware it had, showed what you really could do. That you, it is possible to use very limited hardware to achieve some incredible things. Uh, the guy who actually did the chipset, I think, uh, was it Jay Miner who actually did the chipset? Total and utter genius. And it's the first machine, probably in the last machine I've ever come across, where the guy that designed the hardware fully understood what the guys that developed software wanted the hardware to do for them. Yeah, and, and, and that was, you know, the Amiga was like 
one of my machines I love the most as a kid. You know, I've still got one next to me now, an Amiga 1200. And, uh, you know, that time around the turn of the millennium when it seemed like they were looking for a new path for the Amiga, um, obviously it, it didn't work out in the end. But I did think it was it was really interesting when I read about Dawos and, you know, the stuff you're doing with Amiga and the, the article in Edge magazine before that as well. Because obviously, I mean, around that time, I mean, Java was kind of the, uh, the the big hype in all of the kind of online world. And it felt like Dawos was, you know, a lot more efficient and quicker than that and we were, could have been a technology that really could have changed the game. We, we were there years before, but clearly yeah. we all... We were not Sun Microsystems, and we didn't have the same hype bandwagon. And when it comes down to it, the software that you're using today is not the best software you could be using. It's the mm. software that won the marketing battle and, you know, things like that. It's hardly ever the software that you – the best software you could be using. And certainly um, – I don't want to say anything too disparaging about Java, but Java by far is not the best thing you could be using. Mm. <laughs> uh, to say the least. Um, so what, what kind of happened with Dawas in the end then? And what, what lessons did you take away from, from that project? Um, it was a fantastic time. And we, we built an absolutely wonderful engineering team. The, we were up to about 80 engineers at one point. And some of those engineers are probably the cleverest people I've ever met in my life. They have gone on to influence other companies. They have, you know, when uh, Dow Group uh, dissipated, those people went on into other companies. And you can see the influence they've had on other companies. So, you know, they're a very good bunch of guys. But um, we actually developed a, a full smartphone and software stack for a smartphone for Motorola called the P1088. This was in 2001. And it was a full PJava-based system using our PJava, which was based on – it was an extension of the uh, virtual processor technology that we extended to cope with Java bytecodes. That device was a 13 megahertz ARM. Uh, looked a bit like one of the, the old kind of Nokia phone at the time, but it had a touch-sensitive stylus screen. The battery lasted all week. It had a full suite of uh, combined inbox apps for like email, SMS, etc. It even had a few games included on the device. And it was all completely fully developed. Everything fit into a one megabyte ROM, yes, a full PJava system that ran on a 13 megahertz ARM, fit into one megabyte. And um, there was lots of advanced orders for the device. Networks had already ordered a quarter of a million blocks of phones. Remember, this was back in 2001, not 2006 when the iPhone came out. This, years before, yeah. This was five years before that, and there was a marketing decision at Motorola. They had a new marketing guy had joined Motorola, and he had come from Procter & Gamble, and he decided that he didn't want uh, – he wanted to cull the number of product lines that Motorola were doing, and he just drew a line through the map phone just crossed it out and said that I want that program cancelled for no re reason other than he just wanted nine out of 14 and he just cut five of them. He just crossed out five of them. And one of the products that he crossed out was the map phone. And that map, just a, 
that, a number in a spreadsheet then just gone. Yeah, just delete that row yeah. of the spreadsheet. Yeah. But that phone was literally two weeks from shipping to the distributors. It was wow. the factories that had tooled up and were manufacturing them, and all of the networks had already ordered the phones. The reviewers were ready to go with the the reviews, and the reviewers were all wetting their pants because you, you can imagine what that that a device like that would be like five years before the iPhone. In an alternative universe, um, we could all be using Motorola devices. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's a conversation that I have with Francis yeah. Cherig all the time. It's like just just mm. sit back and content yourself with the thought that in a in another alternative timeline, yeah. <laughs> that did not happen, and everything that ever happened to the iPhone is the map phone. <laughs> yeah, oh. you, you just have to get you know be stoic about these things. Some of these things just happen, and you just have to live with it. It's not your decision. I mean, I- it's not the technology. It's just some idiotic decision is made somewhere, and boom, you know the world yeah, that's, changes. That's thing. Beyond your control, isn't it? Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. But obviously, now, the, all these experiences, Chris, I mean, you, you're continuing to put them to good use. I mean, I know today you're currently working on a, a new operating system. So tell us about your latest project. Yeah, well, well I did have, um, after what happened at Dow, I mean, Dow, partly the result of what happened with the map phone, that caused a, what happened at Dow was that that caused quite a big resource issue, funding issue, as you might imagine. And we never really recovered and it ended up that it turned into a funding problem. We just couldn't arrange uh, funding in time, and the company uh, went down because of that. Um, after that, I uh, moved uh, into – I started deciding to maybe go back to my roots uh, with Daos because Daos over time, through Dow Group, we had developed that into intent and that had lots and lots of new things added to it that were all customer driven stuff the desire to do use c compilers and things like that and really that the system bloated out to a point where i was no longer really happy with what was going on the core design of the system was no longer what it was meant to be so i decided to start a project about is it about six years ago now just as a background thing to to keep your your soul together to just start from scratch take the ideas mm. that the, were the core conceptual things about what made daos daos and just start again from scratch just start writing in you know a machine code loop that just you know span around an event loop and take it from there and all of this is publicly available. If anybody wants to see all the history of this, they can go and look at the Chrysalisp GitHub project and they can just see it, you know, how it all happened from the first line of code. And I've just been working on that as a background thing. Um, but I took an interlude in the meantime to I, – I took a job at a company called Promethean, um, they do electronic whiteboards for education. It just so happens that they're five minutes down the road from me. So um, I ended up working for them for about three years, and I developed their whiteboarding software. 
So if you go into most classrooms these days that have a Promethean whiteboard, so like an 80-inch panel up on the wall, the whiteboarding software for you know, teaching and lesson delivery and stuff that they have there, that's software that I developed for them. So, right. yeah, and that went back to that the art studio type days. It's like I'd already done those types of tools so when Promethean said to me, what we want to do is come up with a new technology to do a classroom whiteboarding experience, I said, fair enough, okay, yeah. I can do I've that. I've done that before. I can do that. <laughs> so I did that for a while. But recently, uh, about two years ago, I left Promethean and I've been working on uh, Chrysalisp full-time. And, well, when I say full-time, I Last year was there was a bit of a break because unfortunately um, my wife died of leukemia and my brother-in-law died of a heart attack within the same month. Oh, sorry to hear that, Chris. And so that kind of stopped everything happening last year. Mm. But I'm getting I'm getting back into it now, getting back into you know life in the computing space. But Chrysalisp is a reimagining of the Taoist concept. It's a portable operating system and runtime environment it runs on mac windows linux it uh, runs has translators available for um, x86 arm risk v and it has an emu uh, available for it as well which we use for installation but you can also use that as the runtime system if uh, you don't have to have one of those three processors and it is completely self-contained. It has all of its own libraries, GUI, kernel. It has its own font engine as well. And it has its all of its own tool chain. So it has its own editor, assembler, compiler. And it even comes with a common Lisp-like interpreter uh, as well for the application development. And as I say, that's all available um, on GitHub if anybody wants to go and have a look. Installation image is currently sitting at 95 KB wow. for all of that. Tiny, yeah. All of incredible. that all of that fits in 95 KB. And the if you want to do a, an OS build, so if you want to build all of the software, my, my MacBook, which is a 2014 MacBook, can do a completely from scratch build in a third of a second. Yeah, before you can blink your eye. Yeah, yeah literally, literally <laughs> you, yeah. you can type make, clean, press return, and then the cursor just reappears and you're done. Oh, Chris, it's incredible looking at this. And, you know, anyone that maybe like me read about Daos back in the day and was curious as to kind of where it would have ended up and kind of the concepts as well. I mean, even looking at some of the demos, I recognize them from the Daos screenshots I saw. Did you like um, the Boeing so- demo? Yes, yeah, a, very, yeah, very, very uh, Amiga reminiscent. Yeah, yeah. I, had to do, I had to do a version of Boeing. That's an om- yeah. homage to the Amiga. Yeah, well, it looks awesome, Chris. And uh, obviously, I'll link up the GitHub in the show notes if uh, people want to click through to it and um, 
check it out themselves and follow your progress there. Um, honestly, we, we could do like another two or three hours with you, Chris. Your, your career has been so interesting and continues to be. But um, I appreciate you're a busy guy. And uh, thank you so much for uh, reminiscing with us and uh, sharing some of your story. It's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. We, we can always do another one because we haven't touched on things like Xevious uh, and stuff like that. And the, stories, yeah. the stories attached to that and Probe Software and Fergus. <laughs> I think we should do a part two, definitely. Well, I'm up for that if you want, guys. <laughs> All right, Chris. Well, thank you very much for coming on. It's been wonderful to chat to you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much.